If I haven't met you yet, my name is Justin Taylor. I'm the worship pastor here at Carmel. Uh, Alex Kennedy will be in uh, this coming week, starting with a new series in the book of Philippians. Uh, I'm so excited to be talking about this today. I get to talk about what we're going to talk about today. I asked Pastor Alex if I could talk about this today. Uh, I don't want to talk about a passage. I don't want to talk about a single verse. I want to talk about a single word. A word that is so charged with resplendent glory that the first time that it was spoken in full force, the listener would have died had the speaker not covered him inside the cleft of a rock and covered him with his hand. A name so charged with glory that the next time it is spoken in anywhere to the same degree, every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will simultaneously drop. The word I want to talk about today is the name of the Lord. Not just God in general. If you say God, it's very important that you know who you're talking about and who you're talking to when you're talking about that. Depending on where you live in the world, God can mean anything, right? Even in the Bible, if you were to ask the question, God, they will say, which God? The God of the Ammonites, the God of the Hittites, the God of the Egyptians. The name of the Lord is different to just the word God, because God is just what he is. He is divine. But the name of the Lord tells you who he is. And this morning, I am chiefly interested in who we are talking about. So today, I want to talk about the name of the Lord. And right from the get-go, let me just say the conclusion so that if you don't listen to anything else, you will listen to this. The name that is above every other name has been bestowed upon Jesus. So that now, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is? Okay, Lord. Lord is a really interesting word. In the New Testament, the, the Greek translates that as kyrios. Kyrios is just a title. Kyrios means Lord or Master or Sir. Uh, I brought with me my little name tag today. Uh, this is my name, probably can't see it, but at the top it says Justin Taylor. That's my name. Just below, it says my title, which is Worship Pastor. Now, if you want to get to know me, you've got to make your way beyond the title and to my name. My title just tells you what I do. My name tells you who I am. And the people that I love the most in my life are less concerned with my title than they are about who I am. Now, I don't want to get any wrong ideas. Curios, or the word Lord, is a lordly title. 
you of all people in this country as Americans should know that there are certain rooms in which you don't get to say anything but Mr. President, right? Especially if you're in the press, and especially if you disagree. But the name, the name of the Lord is what we're interested in. And though Lord is a title, it's the first clue to understanding who the Lord is. So I want you to turn with me, if you would, and we're gonna be here briefly before we move on to another passage, but Psalm 110. If you would turn with me there, please. The Psalms are the most quoted book in the Bible, and it just so happens that Psalm 110 followed closely by Psalm 2, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Look what it says there in verse 1. The Lord, we're talking about the word Lord. The, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, immediately, do you notice there? And I want you to see this if you can. Do you notice how it's written in two different ways? One is written capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And the other one, just L, and in small case, O-R-D. Do you see that? Many of you might know this, but look at verse 2. The Lord, all caps, sends forth from Zion. Look at verse 4. The Lord, all caps, has sworn and will not change his mind. But look at verse 5. The Lord, lowercase, is at your right hand and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So what's going on there? Why does our English Bible write this in two different ways? Well, it's because it represents in the Hebrew two fundamentally different words that are written in the Hebrew. Whenever you see Lord, lowercase l-o-r-d, it is talking about the word Adonai which just so happens to mean exactly the same as the New Testament word kurios. So this is, this is your Hebrew for the day and your Greek. Adonai, kurios are titles. They just mean Lord, Master, or Sir. So in the New Testament, Jesus will talk about characters in his parables as Lord. Paul will even call the centurions who are shipping him off to Rome kurios. Paul and Silas are called Kyrios by the Philippian jailer. In the Old Testament, King Saul, King David, Adonijah, they are called Lord. It just means Lord, Master, Sir. But we wanna make our way beyond the title. Whenever you see in your Bibles, and you will see it a lot, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is talking about the covenant name of the Lord. Just so you can see, you don't have to understand Hebrew to know that those are two totally different words. One is a title, Adonai, and the other one is the name of the Lord. Can anyone guess the first time that God exegetes his name for us, like really expands his name? If you're thinking Mount Sinai, you'll be correct. And so let's go there, and we're gonna park there for a little bit. Exodus chapter three. Uh, Christian read this earlier today. And so I'll have you, uh, let me invite you to stand uh, for this reading. 
because it is a one-of-a-kind passage. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Well, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus am I to be remembered through all generations. Thank you. You may be seated. So now let me show you something a little bit fun. So we've looked a little bit, at least on the screen, we've seen a little bit of the spelling of God's name. But now what God is about to do is show him something of the grammar of his name. So we're going to talk. We do a little review of some grammar, so the kids can help me with this because this is still fresh in your mind. If I talk about the first person, who am I talking about? Myself, me, myself, I, or we if it's plural. If I'm talking about the second person, who am I talking about? You. But now, if I talk about the third person, who am I talking about? I'm talking about he or she if it's feminine, and plural, it would be they, right? First person, second person, third person. Now have a look at this little verb in Hebrew. It's the word haya, like what you would say in karate. But it's a to be verb. So this is a verb that you don't, this is not a verb that you do, this is a verb that you is. It's what you are. It's a verb of being. You can say was or is or will be or being. That's what this word means. In fact, in 3 verse 1, when it says, Moses was looking after the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro, that is the word that is used. So, if I add a first person singular prefix onto this, you get this word. That is the word ehye in Hebrew, which is I am. It appears only in this passage in the Bible in this form. Now, what he says to Moses is he makes a switch there, and then he changes it from the first person singular to the third person singular. That is the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. There's four letters in Hebrew, and as such, it is often called the sacred tetragrammaton. Tetra meaning four grammaton letters. It is the holy four letters. And when you read that, it doesn't happen just once like it does in this passage. You will see that word 6,500 times in your Old Testament alone. Let me put that into perspective for you. 
there are 1,800 more occurrences of the name of the Lord than there are instances of the word God in your whole Bibles. God tells you what he is. Yahweh tells you who he is. So what he's saying is that, and let's flip back and forth, this is kind of fun. I am he who is. I am who I am. He is who he is. Let's have a look in the scripture one more time so that you can see it in context. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This, in other words, Yahweh, is the name, my name forever. And thus, in other words, Yahweh, is the name that I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. In other words, when, God's, when Moses is asking God, what's your name? God can say about himself, well, I am who I am. But I want you to call me he who is. In other words, he is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the eternally unchanging existing one. It's actually a way of saying, I am the one who exists. I'm the one who actually exists. Now, why would he go and tell, uh, of all the names that you could choose, you know, James and Luke and all of that sort of, why choose this name? Well, I wouldn't hope, God, in the mind of God, can you imagine the reasons why he would do that? But I want to give you two just to think about briefly. Why Yahweh? And those two reasons are his sovereignty and his holiness. So his sovereignty. Have you ever been in a situation where someone says, it is what it is? Like there's no, there's, there's no, there's no point reasoning, there's no point arguing. You're not going to change the situation by thinking or understanding. You just have to deal with it because it is what it is. Well, he is who he is. There is no higher standard to which God must conform. Whatever you think righteousness and holiness and justice and love are, they get their cue from him, not the other way around. So if we're just talking about a generic God, we get to define that and then write God at the top of the page. And that's okay if God is just a general idea and a principle, but he's not. He has a name. His name is Yahweh. And that name is often, and I mean often, in Leviticus 49 times, the only reason he gives for a command. I want the tabernacle to be built like a rectangle. I am the Lord. That's it. I want Aaron to wear this ephod. Aaron's going to Moses like, I have to wear what? Why do I have to wear that? 
I don't know, he's the Lord. The name of the Lord means that he is sovereign. If he is the one who actually exists and proves himself to be so, you have all the reasons that you ever need to do exactly what he tells you to do. As such, the name of the Lord is the basis for every commandment he gives, including the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. Therefore, and then he lists the Ten Commandments. It's the basis for the greatest commandment, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Your heart, soul, and mind don't come into the, into the picture until he has said Yahweh three times. He's sovereign, and he is holy. Holy means set apart. In the Bible, there were utensils that were holy, set apart for a unique purpose. At our house, there are dish towels that are set apart to be hand towels. <laughs> and it's important that I tell the difference. <laughs> but that can sound scandalous when you talk about God. How can you say God is holy? What is he set apart from? Other gods? Are you implying that other gods exist? Well, he is the God who is, and he is set apart from all other gods who are not. The name of the Lord is an open challenge to the existence of any other gods. God doesn't spend or have to spend very much time disproving other gods. All he has to do is prove his name. Nine times in the book of Exodus alone, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Then Pharaoh will know. Then the Egyptians will know. Then my people will know. 38 times in the book of Ezekiel alone. Then you will know that I am the Lord. In other words, the name of the Lord is not only sovereign and not only holy. Not only is it true, but it is a truth of which you can be sure. Because he's not just sending Moses downstairs to Pharaoh to tell him so, but to demonstrate it. Can you imagine poor Moses going down to Pharaoh and he says, my God says, let my people go. And he says, which God? Well, there's no easy way to say this, but um, the one who actually exists. The name of the Lord is an open challenge to the existence of other gods. And he is sending Moses down to demonstrate it so that it is a name of which we can be sure. So, big question of the day. Where did Yahweh go? After 6,500 occurrences in the Old Testament, up to the, very, the second last verse in the book of Malachi, where did the name go? Have you noticed that there's a little bit of a sheepishness in Christian circles around the name Yahweh? There's like a kind of, I don't know exactly how we're supposed to say it. I don't think anyone really knows how we're supposed to say it. I don't even know if we're supposed to say it. How did we go from, this is my name forever, and thus 
shall I be known throughout all generations to basically a benevolent version of he who must not be named. How did we go from do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain to do not take the name of the Lord your God at all? We just read from Psalm 110. Where's Yahweh in there? I mean, I, I appreciate the reverent use of all caps, but that's not his name. It's not the same as Adonai, but it's written the same as Adonai. Where did the name of the Lord go? And the short answer is tradition. We don't get it from the Bible. That would be a big problem. As early in the Bible as Genesis 4, verse 26, this is, this is uh, Adam's grandson, Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Joel says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can you imagine if we weren't allowed to do that? Paul quoting that passage says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how can they call upon the one that they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. So it doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from tradition. But who cares about tradition, right? We only care about the Bible. Well, it's important because it's a tradition that, crazy as it sounds, that the New Testament adopts. Have you ever heard Jesus say Yahweh? Have you ever heard the New Testament say Yahweh? Why not? Jesus had no problem ruffling feathers. Well, the tradition goes a little something like this. Basically, in the time between the Old and the New Testaments, people began to avoid saying the name of the Lord, their God, altogether, saying, lest we take the name of our God in vain, inadvertently, by mistake. And so began a tradition known as Kethiv Kere. Kethiv comes from the Hebrew word katav, to write, and Kere, to say, so that there's a difference between what is written and what you read out loud. So whenever they came to the passages where you would see the name of the Lord, they began to substitute the name of the Lord for Yahweh. I mean, uh, Yahweh for Adonai out of reverence, out of respect, out of fear of getting it wrong by mistake. And several groups practiced this. The Essenes at Qumran were scribes, they did this. The Masoretes, they did this too. But importantly for our purposes, the Greek translators of the Old Testament did that as well. Now why is that important? Because the Greek Old Testament is what the New Testament writers used for their quotations. I'll say that one more time. It is actually the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the New Testament writers used for their quotations. If you are a Galilean fisherman living in the first century, and Aramaic is your first language, Hebrew may be your second, Greek way down the list, why would you take all of the trouble 
of translating your second language into your third or fourth language when there's a perfectly adequate translation of the Greek that's been around for two, three hundred years by the time that Jesus Christ was around. And that's exactly what they did. 80% of the quotations and the references in the New Testament come directly from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Greeks practiced this tradition. When they came to the name of the Lord, they translated Yahweh as Kyrios. Remember Kyrios we talked about, the same as Adonai? Yahweh and Adonai were both translated by the Greeks as Kyrios, which is Lord. And the reason we read it that way in our Old Testaments is because that's how the New Testament writers read it in theirs. Now, we have the benefit of seeing the all caps so that we can see the difference. So if this is true, okay, if 80% of the time they translate directly from the Greek Old Testament, what do the quotations mean when they say that Jesus Christ is Lord? When the New Testament writers are reading their Old Testaments and they say kurios in the Greek New Testament, it could be either one. It could be Yahweh or it could be Adonai. So who is Jesus? Is Jesus Adonai? Well, he's at least Adonai, right? He's at least Adonai. He is our Lord. In fact, we started with Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And in the Gospels, Jesus reads himself as Adonai in that passage. But is there anything more? Is it possible that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name? Notice the absence of any exceptions. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So is Lord, I mean it should be obvious by now what we're talking about. What passage does Paul have in mind? Let me show you. Isaiah 45, 22 to 24. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn and from my mouth have gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. How's that for a setup? To me every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue shall swear allegiance only in the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. Paul couldn't possibly be more clear. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. 
Again, what a miserable bunch of Baptists. (laughs) Not a hallelujah out of the one of you. So it should come as no surprise then that is the name of Yahweh, the sacred tetragrammaton, that the name of Jesus in Hebrew is Yehoshua. It doesn't mean the Lord saves. It means Yahweh is salvation. In the Old Testament, it is spelt with four letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. In the New Testament, it is spelt J-E-S-U-S. Jesus also had this to say, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Is it any wonder that they picked up stones to throw at him? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the one who is. The New Testament even rephrases the Shema. The one passage that the the Jewish people will hold on to say, it's God alone. It's God alone. Look how the New Testament says it. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, who? The Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The mystery of the Shema is that Jesus is the Yahweh that is written into the Shema. That would have been a radical statement, and Paul knows exactly what he's doing when he does it. He, Jesus, Hebrews says, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. The name that is above every other name has been given to Jesus. And so what does that mean for us? That means that we can now be saved in his name rather than consumed by it. It's pretty good news. Do you remember Moses? Moses? Moses speaks to God and he says, now show me your glory. It's very important you remember how God does that. He says, I will put you in the, in the crack of a rock and I'll put my hand over you 
and I will cause my glory to pass by you. How? I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. It was the sound of God saying his name that is the glory of God. But the shadowy caves of Mount Sinai are replaced by the full sunshine of Jesus' face on the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses stood as a witness because Jesus is the merciful covering of God. And he chose two witnesses, one who knew God's name in the, in, in the power of a still small voice and Moses as witnesses. Peter, James, and John are falling down. Moses and Elijah are standing, talking with him as with friends because they know that a new day has dawned in Christ Jesus where we are covered by the merciful hand. So don't be shy about the name of the Lord. He has given us his name and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We preach, yay, one amen. I love that. Amen? amen. Hallelujah. So what does that mean for us? Just listen to this passage. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen. Amen. No more word policing. No more walking around in fear about whether we're going to get the name wrong accidentally. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, are beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another as we behold the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. There are few in the church that would ever doubt that, that the Father is Yahweh, and it should go without saying that the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of Yahweh. Old Testament and New Testament alike say so. But the name, the name that the Father would have you say is the name of the Son he loves. It's what he said on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father actually defers to Jesus. Think about that. This is my son, whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. You listen to him. For there is no other name. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. 
Can you say his name? Amen. In his name we pray. If we call on his name, we save. If we suffer for the sake of the name, it is an honor. If we baptize in his name, along with Father and Son, we begin to make disciples of all nations. And when we give so much as a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in his name, we render worship to him. And so in Jesus' name, would you pray with me? Oh, gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that in many times, in many ways, you have spoken. But in these days, you have spoken to us through your Son, whom you have made the heir of all things. And so we do not proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake the same God who said out of darkness let light shine has caused his light to shine within us to give us the light of revelation the revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ now as we give in Jesus' name, of our offerings. Lord, I pray that they would be pleasing in your sight. So as they do, let's take a moment to let the resonance of the sound of the name of Jesus echo in our ears.